You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast is sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech, where we pick through the rubble of the collision of media, technology, and entertainment to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom. Once again, I'm your host, David Bloom. I'm so delighted to be with you here in 2021, a year we never thought would ever arrive, given how things went in the last year. It is an opportunity for me to take a little bit of a look back and a look forward as well. Going to take my grades for the year for the major streaming services, uh, something I've been trying to do on a quarterly basis uh, with uh, off and on consistency, but uh, worth looking at how they're doing here as the streaming makeover of Hollywood is continuing to evolve uh, the entire entertainment business. And uh, then we'll look at some of the, the things coming in this 2021, the trends that I see coming and things that are likely to shift further what's happening here and what to look out for. So to start with, let's begin with my grades. Here at the festering butt end of an excruciatingly hellish 2020, uh, it was pretty easy to forget how completely transformed the subscription streaming video business had had, uh, become in just 14 months, really, since the what I'll call the current era began. That was in early November of 2019. Back then, uh, subscription video was a promising but not yet significant addition to the entertainment offerings of most big media and tech companies. Uh, Several had announced plans, few had realized them. On November 1st, Apple TV Plus launched, and soon after, Disney Plus followed. Each had an eye-catching title to start off with, The Mandalorian for Disney Plus, The Morning Show for TV Plus, but only Disney Plus really grabbed a notable audience. Uh, Netflix, of course, was Netflix, though it wasn't Netflix quite the way it has been since. And Hulu and Amazon had a few award winners of note that really stuck out and grabbed Emmy attention. But streaming was hardly crucial to the average household entertainment diet. That is not what streaming looks like after 2020, where it became an essential part of our pandemic-vexed lives. Several other subscription services have launched, Uh, As of tomorrow, I uh, record this on Sunday, January 3rd, Discovery Plus will launch. And very soon, though they've been less specific, uh, Viacom CBS will launch a rebranded and beefed up Paramount Plus. The misbegotten and star-crossed Quibi, of course, has already come and gone, uh, leaving a trail of tears and uh, more than a billion dollars in spending behind it. Overall, though, it's pretty clear audiences are making the shift. Cable TV household penetration rates are free-falling at their lowest level in many years, while three in four U.S. households now subscribe to at least one streamer. Depending on who's doing the studies, the average household has around three to four of those streaming services. That's a lot of online video, even amidst an era of lockdowns, racial reckoning, work from home, study from home, for God's sake, just stay home. So how did all the new services do in a year where they suddenly became a crucial part of our daily lives? My grades on the seven most consequential services start with what I'll call the grade A's. And nowhere is there more of a grade A streaming service than Netflix. In the first half of 2020, it added nearly as many subscribers as it had in all of 2019, more than 26 million. It now has around 200 million subscribers worldwide, and it's probably actually well above that by now. 
Netflix even made more money than it spent, which was something new for the company, thanks to reduced production spending in the middle of the pandemic, and of course, all those new subscribers and their monthly revenue. But Netflix will be challenged, I think, to duplicate those sparkling numbers in 2021. Regardless, in 2020, it excelled, providing homebound customers a monthly tsunami of productions from across the planet. Its release slate simply overwhelmed the competition. In many cases, it released more titles per month than most of its challengers managed for the entire year. Sure, critics carped that too few of those shows were memorable, but plenty were worthwhile. The Old Guard, The Witcher, and Extraction all appear headed to franchise status. Emily in Paris was the hate-watched French confection that launched a thousand hot takes online. Ryan Murphy keeps pumping out entertaining wildly over-the-top shows such as Ratchet, The Prom, and Hollywood. While Shonda Rhimes finally delivered, I think, what's going to be a clear winner in Bridgerton, which is on its way to franchise status as well. Meanwhile, the company fed the award season's bottomless maw with prestige projects such as Mank, The Midnight Sky, The Five Bloods, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, and the superb, and I mean superb, documentary Script Camp and Dick Johnson is Dead. All of those are worthwhile films to watch, and I strongly recommend you track them down. There's not much to criticize beyond questioning how Netflix will duplicate itself in 2021. Next year will feature far more focused, functional, and productive competition all trying to grab and keep audiences that, and Lord, we desperately hope, no longer have to spend their lives confined to quarters. My grade for Netflix, A+. Disney+. Plus. Now, from a business standpoint, Disney's streamer hit a home run, signing up an estimated 37 million subscribers by year's end, according to the Wall Street Journal, easily the best of the new contenders. While virtually the entire rest of Disney was getting hammered by the pandemic, virtually everything that they do was affected in a big way. Disney Plus shown. And it's attempting to grade 2020 based on what's coming ahead. As outlined at last month's investors conference, which took half a day, where executives said 80% of their 100 planned new shows, including plenty of movies and series from Marvel and Star Wars, will debut first on the streaming platform. That full-throated embrace by Hollywood's most successful studio ratifies what this crazy last year made obvious. Streaming is the future, and the future is now. Amid all that, it's important to note how little meaningful new programming Disney Plus debuted this year beyond that culturally resonant second season of The Mandalorian. Far too many shows were meta-programming, as, as I would like to call it, shows about making Disney-related shows and experiences. I give that a big yawn. If you're not a hardcore Disney file or a preteen's desperate parent trying to fill the hours, Disney Plus in 2020 quickly ran out of interesting things to say or watch. If you were those, however, it took very, very good care of you. So my grade for Disney Plus, A minus. This next group I call the second tier of contenders. Let's start with Apple TV Plus. Cupertino somehow seems surprised that an originals-only approach for its video streaming service might not be enough at a time when subscribers had lots of other options to watch shows. To its credit, Apple woke up sometime last spring and opened its vast wallet, acquiring older shows such as the Peanuts specials. It bought new shows, too, like Sony's $70 million Tom Hanks World War II thriller Greyhound. TV Plus had a real breakthrough with the sweet sports comedy Ted Lasso, which I strongly recommend. And smaller wins with Boys State, Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet, Dickinson for All Mankind, and the new animated film Wolfwalkers. 
More importantly, TV Plus is now part of all three tiers of the services bundles that Apple launched late in the year. Those won't make TV Plus a must-watch, but they certainly will make TV Plus easy to watch. On the Apple TV interface, and increasingly, and I think this is fascinating to see, on other platforms too. But to get really serious about the streaming wars, Apple almost certainly will have to splash the cash for a big library, the one area where TV Plus clearly lacks compared to other competitors. That could mean an overpriced MGM, the much bigger Viacom CBS, or perhaps some other usual suspect such as Lionsgate. A Viacom CBS deal would be expensive, but it would also bring Showtime OTT and CBS All Access, which is what Paramount Plus is going to be, plus a bunch of other stuff, along with a deep library of broadcast and cable shows and brands, a news division, rights to NFL games, broadcast network, and much else. Apple certainly has the money to do a game-changing deal. Last I looked, it had something like $193 billion in cash or near-cash securities. It just depends on how much Apple cares about streaming, whether it spends some of that money to make a game-changing deal. So my grade for Apple TV Plus is B-. Amazon Prime Video. Speaking of gigantic tech companies and their video online operations, quirky shows such as the Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett adaptation Good Omens, which I greatly enjoyed, and the Borat subsequent movie film, which I also greatly enjoyed, period romantic drama Sylvie's Love and new seasons of The Boys and Jack Ryan all drew attention. But there was no comedy series on the level of previous Emmy conquerors, The Marvelous Mrs. Mizell, or Fleabag, to leaven the mix. The year's prestige project was Small Axe, Steve McQueen's sublime collection of five feature-length movies about the black experience in England. I strongly recommend this show, or series of shows, which deserves every minute of awards attention it receives, though the fact that it's five feature-length shows probably will complicate things in terms of uh, awards voters' minds. Beyond that, Prime Video seemed almost an afterthought in Amazon's far bigger picture, however, in 2020. The company was the preeminent e-commerce provider for a lockdown nation's many needs. Along the way, it also launched a pharmacy operation, dealt with all the challenges around its folks working in conditions that exposed them routinely to the, the COVID virus, and dealt with increasing regulatory pressure across the world, even as share prices more than doubled, making Jeff Bezos the world's richest man by quite a lot. Of note, at years end, Amazon bought podcast company Wondery. Well, it's easy to think that Amazon, which already owns Audible, which does the audiobooks, is somehow more interested in streaming audio than video these days. Wondery is also the company behind Prime Video hit Homecoming. I think it's fascinating that they're getting into more online audio, but clearly Wondery's whole plan, its whole approach under its uh, leadership was to create podcasts that became video. I expect we'll see a lot more of that. My grade for Amazon Prime Video, B. HBO Max. No service went through more changes, challenges, controversy, or restructuring than HBO Max, which launched terribly in late spring. Some of that was beyond its control. The pandemic delayed production on most of its originals. Worse, disputes kept the new service off Amazon and Roku, which together reach around 80 million U.S. households until late in the year. And then there was the needless, and I mean completely needless, heedless, crazy brand confusion over how HBO Max differed from HBO Now, HBO Go, and plain old HBO HBO. 
newly hired Warner Media chief Jason Kylar spent much of the year cleaning up the mess with rounds of restructuring, layoffs, and deal making. Then, after Tenet tanked in theaters, Kyler's brain trust went all in on streaming. It stunned Hollywood, announcing simultaneous releases in theaters and online of first Wonder Woman 1984 on Christmas Day, then all of its 2021 slate of 17 more films, including big ones such as The Matrix 4, a Dune remake, and the Suicide Squad sequel. The company didn't ease into the announcements either, with weeks of behind-the-scenes negotiations and payouts to co-financing partners, agents, and dozens of profit participants. All those partners found out pretty much when the public did, and reportedly, pretty much all those partners largely remain in hysterics about it. So maybe Kylar won't be done cleaning up messes for many, many months to come. That will be a challenge with possibly long-term effects on their relationships with talent, their ability to get co-financing deals, and much else. In the meantime, though, HBO Max will release a premium movie about every three weeks in 2021, no doubt signing up lots of new subscribers and finally converting all those clueless people still paying for the HBO-only cable service. There's lots of reasons to convert, including HBO's rich library, which counts among its many uh, jewels this year's breakout series, such as I May Destroy You and Euphoria as well as movies from Criterion Collection and MGM, animation from Adult Swim and Hayao Miyazaki's Studio Ghibli, and much else. HBO Max could be the most interesting and excellent streaming service out there, provided anyone in Hollywood still wants to talk to them after Kyler's bombshell. But 2020 was an ever-so-rough and excessively complicated year that only seemed to come together kinda at the end. My grade for HBO Max, C-. That leaves two more services that I think of as sort of bridging the world of traditional pay TV and the future of streaming. The first is Hulu. It's the other broad Disney service, and it seems a bit adrift in the increasingly complicated mouse house streaming universe outlined in that investors conference I talked about. Putting FX shows in a dedicated channel earlier this year was smart, and putting John Landgraf in charge of a lot of programming there was a really good idea because he's really good at what he does. It also made it a big differentiator for Hulu for fans of adult-leaning programming who didn't just want to watch more kids' shows with their children. If you like traditional TV from traditional sources, Hulu still has that deep collection of mainstream programming that certainly works for millions and millions of viewers. Hulu also benefits from its position in one of the more successful skinny bundles, Hulu Plus Live TV, and the more attractive to me, Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN Plus bundle, which together brings three very good services for a buck less than Netflix. As with just about all the streamers, Hulu saw its paying subscribers grow significantly in 2020. But beyond the FX programming, there were only a few notable originals this year. Mrs. America, Rami, and The Great come to mind that helped pull in new subscribers. Though Hulu has those natural advantages I spoke of, its long-term future is unclear, particularly overseas. Where, for instance, does Hulu fit as Disney rolls out Hotstar internationally? They haven't made that clear, and maybe they won't. My grade for Hulu? C+. Finally, Peacock. A soft launch in the spring on parent Comcast's pay TV services went mostly unnoticed. But worse, the wide launch in July attracted little more attention thanks to the pandemic's impacts. Not only were Peacock's new shows stuck in production limbo, as with HBO Max, 
The Tokyo Olympics, which were supposed to be part of the programming, were delayed a year. Instead of providing hundreds of hours of exclusive shows in the days just after the Peacock-wide launch, there was now little reason to tune in, much less pay for it. Worse, Peacock had some of the same carriage disputes with Roku and Amazon that HBO Max faced, to similar result. Given all that, perhaps it's a minor miracle the year ended with 22 million Peacock subscribers. Peacock's free ad-supported tier was livened by eponymous talk shows from Amber Ruffin and Larry Wilmore, but there was little more on the pay tiers that drew in subscribers other than a well-received reboot of, of all things, Saved by the Bell. Uh, Reviews there were largely on the lines of, it's actually pretty funny. Who knew that could happen? NBC Universal's biggest streaming headlines, however, came from the parent studios. After a triumphant video-on-demand run for Trolls World Tour, the company feuded with theater chains, then cut landmark deals to share revenues with two of them around a new distribution window called Premium VOD. NBCU chief Jeff Schell has been pushing the studio into the future on multiple fronts, but the company appears to still be figuring out its new configurations. Peacock will benefit from PVOD movies and lots of comfort food TV spooned out to the millions who get the service through Comcast's pay TV services. But for Peacock to truly take wing, it will need to do a lot more in 2021 to get anyone else to care. Grade C-. So those are my grades for the Big Seven. It is entirely possible that many people will subscribe to several of those services in coming years as they cut the cord and all the rest. In the meantime, I think it's going to be a really interesting year in streaming. I'll come back in a minute after a message to talk a little bit about some of the trends I see going forward. So we'll be right back. And we're back. So... And we're back. So I wanted to dive into some of the trends I see coming next year. As you might have guessed from the grades for last year, it was a tumultuous year for the streaming services as they became really important. And that's great. It sets the table for, I think, some interesting transitions as we go forward. I mean, Hollywood entertainment executives certainly could be pardoned for feeling a bit worn out by the time we got to the end of 2020, given all they've gone through for really three years. I mean, they've had multiple mega mergers, endless restructuring, numerous streaming launches, broken business models, huge new competitors, even the long overdue reckonings over inclusion, representation, Me Too, and Black Lives Matter that helped transform at least some of the expectations and conversation in the town. On top of all that, the 2020 pandemic walloped the town. Some beloved entertainers and behind-the-scenes crew members died. Dozens of productions were disrupted, leading to cancellation of some series and idling thousands of workers. The theatrical window slammed shut. Not incidentally, doing everything from home lit a rocket engine under the town's grinding transition to streaming, the mode of distribution that will dominate its future. A respite from all this would be lovely, no doubt, but bad news for the battered. The roller coaster of reformation that has sent Hollywood careening into the future isn't likely to pull into the station for a break anytime soon. So what's the next shoe to drop as Hollywood lurches into 2021? Here's some of my highly informed speculation on the trends we are likely to see here in 2021. To start, more consolidation. MGM got a jump on this trend when news seeped out that it's for sale again. 
The storage studio is a ghost of its glory days, but has several useful assets that will be attractive. As I mentioned, Apple certainly might be interested. They've apparently had conversations in the past, first about buying that Bond movie for a whopping $600 million that's been on hold. I sort of think if they just spent $6 billion, they could get the whole thing, uh, which would include more than 4,000 movies, a thriving TV production unit, and 10,000 hours of episodic content. That's a nice package, though uh, the number crunchers may not think it necessarily equals the $7.5 billion that MGM's board reportedly is seeking. But if MGM can't get that price now, when will they ever? That said, further consolidation talk inevitably turns to the others out there that almost always come up. AMC, which launched its own service focused on The Walking Dead and some other small networks, Lionsgate certainly is another one. Maybe Cinedime, which has some streaming services, but not a deep library. But it also may include mid-sized powers like Discovery and, as I had mentioned before, Viacom CBS. Both are launching their versions of an encyclopedic SVOD service, but neither is big or broad enough to credibly muscle into the top tier. Where does that leave them long term? For that matter, what about Fox? As the, Mur as the Murdochs contemplate a post-Trump world with only AVOD powerhouse Tubi and a very niche Fox News SVOD service in place. On the hardware side, how long will it take Amazon to buy out Vizio, TCL, or another TV maker for its Fire platform? That sort of trick would be right out of the Jeff Bezos world domination playbook. Would Apple, uh, its new Apple TV 4K is reportedly coming, though it's mostly being beefed up to handle more gaming, uh, or say perhaps Alphabet, we should watch out for the revived Android TV, Google TV push. And the conversation about that combination of service and interface is getting a lot of attention, and I don't think it should be overlooked as Alphabet gets more serious about the TV space. Or perhaps even an invigorated Roku make a big play for market share on the device side. I think we'll also see more distribution windows. We've seen at least three flavors of early release strategies for features on streaming services without any clear winner yet. This year should clarify some key questions. Do day and date releases of big movies drive signups, reduce churn, and build long-term average revenue per user, like WarnerMedia hopes? What's the right price for a premium VOD release like Disney's Mulan or Trolls World Tour? And what will theater chains agree to whenever they're back in operation beyond the NBC Universal AMC deal? I think we're going to see quite a bit fewer theater screens operating by the end of 2021 than the nearly 41,000 that the trade group for the theater owners, NATO, counted last March just as the pandemic hit. Regardless of any short-term government bailout, and there is some money coming, theatrical exhibition needs to restructure for the streaming future, too. That means fewer, better screens with plenty of amenities. It likely means diversifying facilities into multi-purpose entertainment centers with esports arenas, VR experiences, dining and drinking, and special events programming. It also means right-sizing the number of screens for what likely will be fewer mid-range films, which now, I think, are going to be heading straight to streaming. It also means accounting for collateral damage caused by the collapsing retail and mall sectors. Whenever going to movie theaters becomes imaginable again, and it increasingly looks like it's going to be the back end at best of 2021, there should be plenty of big movies to watch. The question is, how long will it take to get to that point, and which theaters will still be alive? I think we're going to see different deals, too. 
when Warner Media announced that ground-shaking uh, decision to go day and date with its 2021 film slate, the first question many in Hollywood had was, what about the profit participants? Warner has to do a lot of cleanup and payout with talent, their agents and managers, and co-production partners such as Legendary. But that rip the bandage off approach, I think, actually leads to a broader shift away from the giant roulette wheel that blockbuster projects have been in recent years. It's a model Netflix has been perfecting for years, much to the chagrin of some in Hollywood who keep still doing the deals. Everyone else is likely to edge towards something similar in coming years because it means, on the one hand, bigger upfront payments to everybody, but no syndication or international rights to sell, and less upside or downside. The long term is it steadies things out and makes for a little more certainty in what has always been a very high-risk business. I think we're going to see more snipped cords and more ad-supported video on demand. Financial exigencies will force many households to join the cord cutting that's already reduced cable household penetration so much, and it's, uh, it's the lowest levels it's been in a couple of decades. Services such as Tubi, Zumo, and Pluto should be big beneficiaries, serving up wads of free, familiar programming that feels a lot like cable without the overhead. And I think that the companies that have bought them over the past two years will get better and better about integrating their for-pay programming with their ad-supported program. And we see that already. For instance, Tubi has delayed releases of The Masked Singer, the big reality show on Fox, its owner. It brings those out uh, subsequently, and it turns out there's an audience for old reality shows like that that have a very high production value but are still cheaper than many uh, scripted shows. I think we're going to see a lot more of that integration all across those big players as they move forward. Broadcasting is another area where we're going to see some shifts. It was already headed to a down cycle in 2021, especially after 2020's record election ad spending. But big media companies will continue to shift their best shows to streaming and out of broadcast and basic cable. That will hollow out the broadcast and surviving basic cable networks, which will increasingly feature formula sitcoms and procedurals mixed with news, sports, and unscripted productions that will only encourage viewers to seek out other sources of entertainment unless they want to stick around, I think, for news and sports. I think we're going to see a lot more bundles, skinny and otherwise. Virtual MVPDs like Hulu Plus Live TV are supposed to capture some of those cord cutters that are leaving pay TV and giving them cable-like experience for less money. These days, the bundles aren't so skinny anymore and they're not so cheap. But they continue to add subscribers for those seeking a partway solution to getting out of the cable headaches that have been so problematic. Expect to see other kinds of bundles arrive in 2021, featuring collections of streaming services that can't break into the very top tier of must-haves, which is to say, to my mind, just about everyone but Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Max, Disney+, and probably Peacock. Disney, of course, is already bundling, aggressively marketing Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN+, and Apple is bundling TV+, Plus with all of its other services. So you get their new fitness app, you get their uh, music, you get their uh, news, you get their game service, which is terrific, called Arcade, you get iCloud, depending on which bundle you use. That's their bundle, and it's a different approach to streaming, but more broadly to entertainment and computer services. And the fact that they're making something around $12 billion a quarter off of their services suggests that it might be a nice way for them to go. It's certainly where they've put a lot of their emphasis. Finally, we're going to see more international flavor. To get bigger, the big services need to reach beyond the United States, where the market's already headed towards saturation. 
One hot market this year is India, where Disney, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Netflix already have a wide range of interests, not just with streaming. With Indian household incomes already at one-third of U.S. levels and more mobile accounts than the U.S. has residents, you can begin to understand the opportunity. The downside, Hollywood-only product, isn't enough to attract tens of millions of subscribers in India, or for that matter, anywhere else. Local audiences want local content, too. Netflix is buying and making content around the world. When will everyone else join the party, and what does that mean for Hollywood, the town, and the people who live here and work here for the media companies here? That's going to be a big question in 2021 and beyond. So those are my thoughts. Love to hear what you guys think of upcoming trends, uh, whether you think the grades I gave to the streaming services were fair, Anybody else you think is going to pop through like AMC or Paramount Plus, or technically it's AMC Plus, or Paramount Plus or Discovery Plus, all these pluses, are any of them plus up to compete with the other guys or are they just too small? And I'd love to see what you think are going to be the big trends coming down the, down the pike for 2021 and how you're adjusting. You can drop me a line on Twitter at David Bloom, on uh, LinkedIn at David L. Bloom. Or you can reach out to me and leave an audio comment through Anchor.fm, which hosts and syndicates my show. If you really like my show, I'd love for you to rate, review, share, and subscribe. That would be wonderful. And if you really, really like my show, Anchor.fm also makes it easy to chip in a few bucks, much like Patreon does on a monthly basis to help keep this well-oiled media machine rolling along. In the meantime, we have made it to 2021. I think we can see some light at the end of the tunnel, even if it just doesn't seem nearly as close as we'd like it to be. And perhaps that light is not an onrushing train. That's my optimistic hope for you and me and all the rest of us. I hope to hear from you. I hope that you stay safe and sane and have a wonderful, profitable, enjoyable 2021 returning to a new normal, even better than the one we left behind years ago. This is David Bloom. For Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Oh, 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 oh,